Welcome to the LDN Radio Show, brought to you by the LDN Research Trust. I'm your host, Linda Elsigood. I have an exciting lineup of guest speakers who are LDN experts in their field. We will be discussing low-dose naltrexone and its many uses in autoimmune diseases, cancers, etc. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to this archived LDN Research Trust conference presentation. We hope you enjoy it. Gastroenterologist, I primarily see CGI disease, but with the uh, internet, my name has gotten around St. Louis, so I wind up seeing other patients for uh, the considerations of LDN. And um, uh, patient, uh, so I've had a fair number of patients who have been treated with LDN for a variety of diseases. And a patient was referred to me uh, because of hepatosplenomegaly um, and had a long-standing history of uh, sarcoidosis. So I said, well, sarcoidosis is an inflammatory condition. Uh, could it work? So um, there is a ph physician's panel on the Research, research Trust, um, and I asked uh, in an email, has anybody used this sarcoidosis? And there were one or two saying, I think I've heard of a case where it was used. So could it be, therefore, something to add to the list? Um, on the Trust's website, uh, we have 176 different conditions, diseases, and syndromes where it has helped people. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, not as many publications as we should have, but hopefully in time we will. My own experience since 2005 is that I've prescribed it to over 1,200 patients with a variety of diseases and conditions, and the ones with the stars are the ones that um, actually have had publications. And um, so I saw this patient with sarcoidosis um, and, of course, reviewed the literature, since I'm not a pulmonary physician where most of the sarcoidosis affects, but certainly I've seen primary GI disease, stomach tumors that turn out to be sarcoidosis, um, so it can affect every part of the body. It's a granulomatous disorder. It starts with T cells, our friends that we deal with every day for, with LDN, and, and macrophages, and it can be in, uh, through any solid body organ or the lungs, and it involves uh, CD3 cells, um, and um, there's abnormalities in the memory T cells that are somehow affected by some antigen or trigger. Um, and so uh, there's certain activity, especially in the lung, um, with this activated T cell. Now, there are many genetic reasons for it, and the um, numbers to come home with in terms of how common it is, is ranges between 1 and 80 out of 130 out of 100,000 individuals. So uh, in terms of frequency, African-Americans have the greatest number between uh, 23 and 80, depending on which study, out of 100,000. Uh, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, about 26. 
out of 100,000, just to give you some comparisons. But something is triggering uh, these uh, cells to then d uh, develop macrophage activity. And um, it's ab maybe abnormal processing or whatever, but when you look at the um, uh, pathology, um, you get these granulomas, which are not too dissimilar to granulomas uh, that we see in C and Crohn's disease. And the treatment, actually, is very similar to what we use for inflammatory bowel disease uh, with steroids and then steroid suppressing or sparing medications. And uh, in light, again, of some similarities, one might think that there might be a role of treatment of sarcoidosis as with Crohn's disease. And in the list of potential ones, therefore, T cell growth and activity is the most important one, in my opinion. So this first case that I saw, and I have three quick cases, uh, and if I have time, I'll just stop it anywhere, anywhere along the way. But this is the uh, dramatic one. So this woman uh, had very severe disease. Um, years ago, 15 years ago, um, where basically her uh, larynx was shut down completely by lymphadenopathy, and she had strictures, and she was treated with steroids and uh, methotrexate, developed neuropathy with that, and had numerous surgeries try to uh, overcome this temporary tracheostomy uh, because she couldn't breathe. Uh, but uh, it actually, and this makes studying sarcoidosis more difficult, fluctuated, and she went into her own remission and then um, happened to get an ultrasound which showed uh, just scanning to look for uh, aortic aneurysm as part of her um, general medical care. And was, she was found to have lymphadenopathy, which was biopsied, showing sarcoidosis. But she was referred to me when the CAT scan was read by the uh, radiologist saying enlargement of spleen and liver, and her internist sent her to me. So uh, with the known sarcoidosis, the thought was that um, the enlarged liver and spleen, which, would, which had these hypodense lesions, were likely to be sarcoidosis. So uh, she was treated uh, with um, LDN initially at one milligram a day, which is usually my starting dose, just to check for sensitivity and gradually work up over uh, 12 to 30 days to uh, higher doses. Um, and she came back a month later. She felt that she was less short of breath. Her fatigue had significantly improved. And she had a sarcoid rash, which she had been taking minocycline for years to suppress. Um, we increased her dose uh, to 4.5 and came back um, in the spring and then again during the winter. Breathing was much better, much more energy, and her rash stayed away. And she described her rash as a hot poker sensation on the skin. And then um, to say, well, okay, symptoms are great, but was there any clinical improvement? Well, before, this is before treatment, and we look at this spleen lesion, um, this is in 2011, and left to its own devices, 
it increased over three years to have a larger one there and multiple little hypodense sarcoid lesions there. So that's before treatment. Then when I saw her in December 2014, we started the LDN. She followed up with CAT scans. Uh, so going from, from this, which is the same cut as this, we see this is smaller and this, these lesions are much less. And then after 10 months of LDN, absolutely no lesions whatsoever in that spleen. And then from pretreatment, looking at both the liver, which was enlarged, and the spleen, the lower part of the spleen, which had other lesions, to showing no lesions in the spleen whatsoever, and a better looking liver. You can see the uh, gross distension of the parenchyma was better, and we see better blood vessels opacifying. So here, uh, perhaps, perhaps the seeing is believing, not only did her symptoms of fatigue, um, suppression of the rash get better, but her liver and spleen got better. More patients who have sarcoidosis have pulmonary involvement. Um, here's a patient, an African-American woman who had 26-year history of pulmonary sarcoidosis. For the last two years, she was dependent on home oxygen, 24 hours a day. Um, she had a chronic cough. Um, before she saw us, she was started on prednisone, and then with uh, some collegiality and discussions uh, about the prior case with one of my pulmonary, pulmonary colleagues, I gave her LDN. First month, no change. Second month, dramatic improvement, less fatigue, less dyspnea. She stopped using the oxygen, which she had been using consecutively, and she only used it uh, for climbing stairs and her prednisone could be tapered. And then finally, a, an American, uh, 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 sorry, uh, a Caucasian man who had uh, chronic, mild um, pulmonary uh, sarcoidosis, some osteopenia, and therefore he was very afraid of ever going on uh, prednisone again. Um, so he had two years of years of dyspnea with activity, treated, with, uh, treated him with LDN. Uh, after two months, he was a bit less short of breath. And then at three months, um, he developed asthma, and, um, which always complicates things because nothing's straightforward. So studying these patients will definitely be a difficult phenomenon the critical people to study are the African-American uh, patients who have worse disease than others, more consistent disease with less fluctuation. And then there are certain specific ways to study this that I've listed up here, um, uh, looking at anti-inflammatory markers and checking their tre treadmilling, uh, treadmill uh, abilities. So uh, yet, Again, um, perhaps a new disorder has been found for LDN to be looked at, and I invite anybody in the pulmonary world to look at it further. Thank you.
Um, doctor, I have a question for you before you, uh, um, Sarah and um, Nancy, wonderful. I have a question before you get away. Obviously, um, um, you work, well, you work in a large organization. You work, you're at Washington University School of Medicine. I teach there, but I'm in private practice, and I do clinical research. So. Okay, so you're in private practice, and you do yeah. clinical research. So other than interpersonal relationships, which are very important for influencing our colleagues or influencing anyone, do you have something that you can suggest to other clinicians to, because if you're working in sarcoidosis, which is outside the realm of your specialty, you must have, I'm assuming, you must have interactions with other clinicians in other fields. So what nugget can you give the clinicians here or can you give the people in our listening audience and our viewing audience around the world to, to interact, interact with other clinicians to work more effectively in this area? And if you'll come back over here to the speaker, microphone, I appreciate it. Well, I, I think there are three. Uh, interacting with your uh, referring doctors individually and showing them um, things that either are published or uh, great case examples or um, pleading, wouldn't you rather try something different than steroids on your next patient uh, who has sarcoidosis? Literally, that's how I've had some of the referrals. Um, and then support groups are big in your community. And um, currently there's a new sarcoidosis support group, which I'm in negotiations with giving a presentation. And I think that would be exciting. Um, and then, uh, but again, um, in terms of uh, trying to get a study going, that's critical. Um, my knowledge is that um, there is a LDN company that is um, supporting Jill Smith in a multi-center study, so hopefully patients will start to be uh, uh, enrolled. And then finally, um, you know, this, this past um, spring was my 10-year anniversary of prescribing LDN. I did an EMR search and realized I prescribed it to over 1,200 patients back in the spring, and I realized, you know, I'm doing things that nobody else is doing in my community. Um, and it's uh, defined me to some degree, um, but it's been relatively silent. So I gave two dinner talks to my best referring internal medicine doctors, and uh, A, it's made the acceptance of the treatment with education to the doctors uh, better. And then um, uh, there was a case example of a, one of the concierge doctor whose uh, patient came to them, a very intelligent patient who surfed the web and said, you know, you know I've got a patient, uh, I, I, I've got severe, the patient said, I've got severe rheumatoid arthritis, all the um, intravenous, basically chemotherapy, Areva, is making me fatigued, I'm getting multiple infections and so forth, I'm on high-dose steroids, I feel terrible. Is there anybody, you know, that would prescribe LDN for me? Because she done, did a website uh, search on rheumatoid. said, yes, Dr. Weinstock can. And she was blown away that somebody even knew about it. So uh, I think keeping up things that make the grassroots phenomenon grow is critical for LDN. 
and that was part of my part of my talk um, that to the physicians, and so them being more aware of it was helpful. And then I've got three uh, physicians assistants who are terrific who uh, see the light, and of my uh, four other doctors that I practice with, one will definitely prescribe it when she's having a hard time with an inflammatory bowel disease patient. And then I have three who never prescribe anything off-label, as they say. And yet, it's not on-label to give thiopurines or prednisone to patients with inflammatory bowel disease. Those do not have FDA approval. So uh, many of us out there are giving off-label therapy, but it's just common therapy. And yet, here we are with LDN, again, low side effect toxic um, profile, low expense, and can benefit many patients. I'm going to launch into ulcerative colitis. Um, um, and talk about the pathophysiology, a little bit about why it might be effective, uh, LDN might be effective, the problems with treating ulcerative colitis patients, and then uh, a study that I published, and then post-study uh, findings on other patients. Just as a background, we have genes that make us risk for diseases, you know, and it's no different with ulcerative colitis. Um, Environmental triggers, uh, whether it be um, toxins in our environment, uh, trigger uh, inflammation, and the wrong set of bacteria uh, in our intestine also plays a role. And dysbiosis, namely having the wrong group of bacteria, can affect uh, the, the gut lining and allow environmental triggers to go down and affect our colon. Uh, autoimmune phenomenon and immune dysfunction is part of the uh, part and parcel of the pathophysiology of UC. Um, there's a bacteria, anaerobic bacteria, that has um, certain uh, antigens, which then are recognized as foreign, and this P. anca uh, is one of the most common autoantibodies that we have, and then we have antibodies against the cells themselves. Inflammation is really uh, a phenomenon that it goes uh, in a major way. And we have immune disturbances because we start losing recognition of what our healthy, normal bacteria are. And when that happens, as I'll show you in a cartoon in a moment, uh, we have inflammation occur, changes and the regulation and the uh, types of T cells that we are living with, which do bad things. So um, to start with, uh, there may be excess or abnormal bacterial or bacterial byproducts that start sneaking through our tight junctions, which could be di uh, disrupted by dysbiosis per se. Um, and then they uh, act with the macrophage and the um, the uh, toll-like receptors, the TR, TLRs, um, which uh, affect how our bacteria are handled when they get through or bacterial byproducts are handled. And then once this macrophage is activated, the T cells start changing and we shift from a T 
T1 to T2, uh, we get more active T cells which start producing bad chemicals such as uh, tumor necrosis factor which can then cause more leaky gut, increased intestinal permeability is the true name for leaky gut, and that allows more uh, antigens to get through which excites the activity of our uh, intestine. There are so many inflammatory chemicals that have been described in both ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, but um, many of these phenomenon uh, and uh, active inflammatory chemicals are going on, and um, we have involvement of the uh, white blood cells, the uh, macrophages, neutrophil, sorry, white blood cells, macrophages and eosinophils. So there's a lot to handle. And with all this, I can say there's no one drug that's going to handle all these inflammatory chemicals. And many of my patients are treated with multimodality therapy. And we're going to say right now that nothing works for everybody. So how could LDN work in IBD? Well, it does regulate cell growth, which is important uh, with all those T cells becoming active. Uh, it stabilizes the, the toll-like receptors. Um, if you can stabilize that, you'll have less cytokine production, as uh, was discussed earlier. It um, has a role in reducing bacteria and bacterial byproduct translocating and getting down below the layer. Um, this is something that I've only seen once um, uh, in the literature, decreasing uh, vascular permeability as a factor for LDN. And um, if the capillaries and microcapillaries are less uh, permeable, then the um, blood cells are less likely to get out into the submucosa and be effective. There's a shift in the uh, paradigm uh, for the Th uh, immune system, and there may be a role for killer cells. Um, this goes over uh, again uh, what I said earlier. And killer cells um, factor in to some degree in the mucosa of ulcerative colitis. Um, it's part of the immune disturbance that there are more killer cells which, act, which interact with antigens um, triggering the autoimmune response. And again, as mentioned before, the autoimmune phenomenon, uh, therapeutic uh, implications of LDN are important and will be addressed later in this convention. Now, uh, we know that if you give naltrexone continuously to animals, that it actually increases killer cells. So the hope is, and perhaps why it might work in this regard, is that we're giving small amounts for a short time, which could increase endorphins and do uh, a better job against killer cells. Traditional therapy, it's suppress immune system, knock it down, knock it down. Um, uh, but uh, very important ulcerative colitis is reducing prostaglandins and free radicals with the 5-ASA medications, the misalamine types. 
But nonetheless, what we've got to prescribe as gastroenterologists uh, out there are expensive, potentially toxic medications, and they only work 30 to 70 percent. Also, when we're talking about narcotics, which is the antithesis to LDN, they are associated with increased infections and mortality. So the, those who take narcotics continuous, and this is a group of, large group of Crohn's patients, they had a 1.5 um, times more likelihood of dying um, or, and a three times greater likelihood of getting serious infections if they were taking narcotics, suggesting that they were actually increasing inflammation. I'm going to go through the drugs very quickly that we've got. Prednisone, hosts of problems with it. As you can see, it only works to get people into a suppressed state but not in remission. The 5-ASA drugs, misalamines, do a good job um, in about 65% getting people into remission and ulcerative colitis, not so much for Crohn's at all. Um, and, but there are potential significant side effects that we worry about. Thioprenes, that's azathioprine, 6-mercaptopurine, and purinethal, different names for uh, thioprenes, um, can only maintain remission. You have to get it into remission. And the severe phenomenon, uh, the allergic pancreatitis, which is in uh, seven to three to seven percent of patients can be very devastating. The leukopenia, extremely devastating. Um, and it's a seven percent likelihood lifetime that you'll have that bad effect and drop somebody's white count, giving them an infection. And then what we really start worrying about is as uh, with uh, transplant patients, long-term uh, thioprene uh, use can increase the risk of lymphoma and skin cancer. So we need something new, something, something better. Um, and then the uh, infliximab, um, the NITNF drugs um, that cost $20,000 a year only work uh, in 18 to 50 percent, and there are many problems associated with them. So years ago, uh, I read Dr. Uh, Smith's lead, in, and I took her lead in my inflammatory bowel disease patients, both ulcerative colitis and Crohn's, because you know many of the drugs that we use are the same. And so, uh, utilizing her spark and uh, enthusiasm, um, I took a patient like this who had Crohn's disease. Um, she had a total colectomy. Um, and then started recurring in her ileum with this ulcer. Uh, she was on infliximab, Ramacade, um, and uh, was uh, given LDN and had a dramatic response, and she's been in uh, remission for six years. Um, now, she was partially responding to this, so I added the LDN, and um, we don't see any activity, and she's doing great. Um, so just in my Crohn's experience uh, that I published and then I've had uh, since uh, in the last two years more patients, obviously um, 33 patients with moderate to severe patients who are failing therapy. 
uh, treated them uh, with the 4.5 dose. Uh, five out of the 33 had to withdraw. Um, but of the patients uh, who responded in a, what I call a significant clinical manner, they said they were markedly or moderately improved. Um, that was 15 out of 33. That was a significant uh, win for those 15 patients. And then 11 were rescoped, and eight had a complete healing, and two had partial healing. My ulcerative colitis data actually started with this patient prior to my Crohn's patients, and he had very severe, sorry, very severe uh, ulcerative colitis. He was on biological therapy, added the LDN, and that took away all the inflammation, little pseudopolyp there, but the lumen opened up, all the pus, all the inflammation disappeared, and he's been great for seven years. So I looked at a retrospective group of 12 patients who were given uh, LDN in ulcerative colitis. Their other medications are listed here, uh, kind of bottom lining it. 10 were on biological therapies and or 6MP when the LDN was started. Um, and um, all had failed simple therapy or were failing simple therapy with 5-ASA. Half of the group had a marked to moderate response, significant reduction in diarrhea, bleeding, abdominal discomfort, and overall well-being. And this group of patients was followed um, to the date of this publication for 70 weeks uh, up to um, 270 weeks. Um, now, 6-MP, um, does it affect the clinical response or not? Well, at least in um, Dr. Smith's patients, uh, it did not factor in, and on my patients, three who were on 6-MP getting partial response did have a marked response. Um, the other three had uh, uh, one failed because of adverse events, insomnia, and the other two just failed. Um, two of the six patients were rescoped and had a complete response, including the one that I showed you. These were tough cases. Um, you know, they, many, many of the doctors I work with would have just sent them for a total colectomy, and some actually did, but nonetheless, two uh, of the six that failed, failed a biological agent. One was on three drugs, and one was on four drugs. And so it's really, uh, this study was dealing with significant problems. So subsequently, um, I've treated um, 11 patients. Um, these nine had active disease, and I started treating some of the milder patients uh, with monotherapy, namely LDN alone, as an experiment, if you will. Um, and uh, of the monotherapy groups, um, marked response in two, and mild to moderate, although it's early in one of them, and then mild uh, response in another where I had to add therapy. 
So there may be a role for monotherapy with LDN in uh, these patients. Uh, more often, I'm using them in combination, and uh, thus, uh, at the, with these nine, uh, four clearly are in a very good state with LDN, and one may well um, do better in time. Then we get into one other quandary. Um, we've got these patients who are on five ASA therapy and six mercaptopurine, and they're doing great, and it's keeping them in remission, but I'm getting nervous because longer and longer they're on it, as risk for lymphoma, and I've had one uh, 6MP patient develop lymphoma, and four patients now who've developed skin cancers, so I'm saying, what can I do to change that? And it's uh, not too dissimilar about what can we do to prevent cancer that was mentioned on the last lecture. So the fact is, is when you stop uh, 6MP in patients who are in deep remission, you're gonna have relapse uh, in uh, basically by two years, uh, fourth will relapse. So uh, I've been talking to my patients lately, and two patients uh, of the four that I've had discussion with have decided to switch from 6MP to LDN to see if we can keep them in remission. I keep them going with their mesalamine, and uh, there's good reason for that in that it can uh, effectively keep people in remission and also ha may have some anti-cancer uh, factors. Uh, so far, so good. But again, knowing the natural history, uh, anything could happen in the next two years. So it's going to be time before I can uh, state anything on this. So in summary, LDN, I think it plays a role. It's inexpensive, low cost, uh, low toxicity. Um, it adds something to the mechanism of action that we need. And we need different mechanisms of actions just because IBD is so complex. Um, for the first time uh, in anybody's publications, it can be therefore used with other drugs. Um, Dr. Smith has certainly used it with 6MP, but I've, my publications show that it can be safe and effective with uh, drugs like infliximab uh, or adaluzumab. It can work with 6MP. Uh, it may work for monotherapy in uh, mild cases. Severe cases, I'm worried because this is a disease that if it gets out of hand, can lead towards total colectomy. So I'm not advocating this, uh, but it's something to consider in your own clinical practice. Randomized controlled trials are very important because, unfortunately, with ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, there is a significant placebo response. And that's the importance also of rescoping to see if there's endoscopic healing. And that was done very well in uh, one of Dr. Smith's double blind studies, uh, which I thought had a significant clinical impact and it needs to be done in ulcerative colitis as well. Hi, uh, this is Dr. Marzell, and I am honored to present some LDN cases from my practice. 
and I would like to just um, go in there. I'm a naturopathic physician, and um, let's just go ahead and start this. Uh, this is one of the first patients that I treated um, with LDN, and it was a very uh, strong case and impressed me greatly. This is a 64-year-old female, and she was diagnosed with gallbladder cancer. When she was diagnosed, she had multiple metastases throughout her abdomen. Um, this case was terminal. She returned to Portland after the diagnosis to be with her family and essentially to die. She was expected to expire within a few months and was started. I started her on 1.5 milligrams of LDN, increased that to 3 milligrams within a couple weeks. It was well tolerated and there were no side effects. Response uh, was very quick from this patient. She noticed an increase in energy right away. She experienced some nausea with her illness, but she treated this with ginger. Her energy was good, her attitude improved, and she started walking for exercise at a pace that many of us had difficulty keeping up with. She was able to visit with most of her family members, including children, mother, twin brothers. She was not in pain, but slowly lost energy and strength as the disease progressed. Because there was little need for pain medication, she was able to have time to visit with her family with clarity of thought, humor, and better energy. She expired in the spring six to eight months longer than she was expected to live. The next case is a 56-year-old female with ulcerative colitis. She was diagnosed two years prior to when I saw her. Her disease was mostly in the distal aspect of the colon. She had already, before I saw her, been tested extensively for food allergies, which she generally avoided. She was taking mesalamine, a 1,000 milligram rectal suppository before bed. She had rectal bleeding occasionally. And usually her symptoms were traced back to eating a food that she was sensitive to. The patient was started on 1.5 milligrams of LDN, which she tolerated well. The patient was symptomatic at the time of starting the LDN, was eating pecan muffins, <laughs> which she refused to give up. Three weeks later, the patient stated that she discontinued the pecans and her bowel symptoms improved. She had increased her dose of LDN to 3 milligrams as directed after a couple weeks, reported she was doing well, and the dose was refilled. The patient was seen one month later. She noted if she goes off her diet, she experiences less adverse bowel symptoms as long as she is continuing her LDN. She noted being more tired when she was on a higher dose, even though, even though she was well-rested during her sleep. She complained of awakening, wanting more sleep, and hit the wall at 4 o'clock. We decreased her dose to 2 milligrams a day. Three weeks later, she reports doing better on the decreased dose of LDN. She states she felt depressed on the higher dose. She denied any interference with sleep on the two milligrams and states again that if she cheats on her diet, 
she has less symptoms if she's taking the LDN. Uh, this is a 56-year-old female, and her original complaints were of pain in her hips, back, and ankles. Uh, she was diagnosed with osteoarthritis, bursitis, and she was going into menopause on top of it. She started on 1.5 milligrams of LDN for pain. She complained of interference with sleep and continued to have pain in her right shoulder. She decreased the LDN dose to one milligram, which the patient took for a while, did not feel it helped that much, and discontinued it. A year later, she presented with lichen planus in her mouth. She continued to have bursitis in one hip, dry mouth, and dyspareunia. She was taking lisinopril, 10 milligrams, Divagel, a milligram, that's an estradiol gel for those who don't recognize that particular one, um, a milligram twice a day, which is a fairly strong amount, and vaginal progesterone that she was cycling. She discussed, we discussed using LDN again, but she states she felt too exhausted on it. One year later, she returned for her yearly physical, and she not only continued to have the lichen planus in her mouth, but she suspected she may have it in her genitals, which she did. She, she started take this motivated her a little more, <laughs> and I put this case in so people would see that sometimes it's not real easy to navigate your way through um, people who are ill trying to get them to take a new therapy that they're not certain about. Anyway, she started taking the LDN that she had sitting there from last year. She noticed some nightmares on the 1.5 milligram dose, but just has dreams on the one milligram dose. She also noted a migraine headache on the first day she took the LDN, but has not noted any further migraines. She has also been avoiding dairy products, substituting almond milk and coconut. She advised me that she has noted swelling and irritation in her mouth after eating raw almonds, which is common with people and uh, having a tree nut allergy. Two months later, she has been taking the LDN at 1.5 milligrams following a gluten-free diet. She had marked improvement in her oral lichen, but unfortunately, her vaginal lichen persisted. We increased her LDN dose to 2 milligrams. The patient was started on clobetazole cream applied to the lichen in her genital area. Three months later, the patient had increased her LDN to 2 milligrams twice a day on her own. She states she noted decreased pain from the vaginal lichen within five days. She was able to decrease the clobetazole cream to three times a week. She states she experienced headaches when she doubled the dose of LDN at night, but on using it twice a day, no headaches. The patient has not had resolution of her lichen. However, she's experienced decreased pain and symptoms with the addition of the LDN. This is a 60-year-old female um, who presented with low thyroid. The patient has Hashimoto's thyroiditis, currently manifesting as a hypothyroid disease. She has gained about 20 pounds in the last three years. She's insulin insensitive without overt diabetes, 
and in addition to that has allergies, parathyroidism, which has been surgically treated, um, intermittent abdominal pain, diverticular, and a strong family history of pancreatic cancer. She is taking the following meds, femoring, 0.1 milligram, and a little extra estrogen gel as needed, metformin, 500 milligrams twice a day, thyroid, 88 micrograms, and omeprazole daily. The patient had uh, difficulty with feelings of constriction in her throat and tenderness in her thyroid, and these symptoms recurred just absolutely repeatedly. Every time she had anything, a sore throat, a sinus infection, anything, to her, she would have this feeling as though her throat was being pressed on right where her thyroid was. And she also had great difficulty with fatigue. The patient was started on LDN when she complained that she took a walk, and this is what it took to get this patient started on LDN. <laughs> she, she was so exhausted when she took a walk that she did not think she would be able to turn around and walk back to her home. <clears throat> she continued to gain weight and had a recent gastrointestinal flu, so she was not doing well. Patient was started on one milligram of LDN. She noted crying spells and her estrogen dose was increased. About four days later, she advised me that she felt better, had more energy, and was sleeping better. She advised me that after starting the LDN at two milligrams, not one milligram, she noticed some anxious feelings. So I advised her that this happens at first. So she remembered that I'd said that, and she wasn't concerned and continued with that dose of the medication. Her symptoms of anxiety resolved within a few days. She had better energy throughout the day, and then she noticed less depression, and pressure on her throat from her thyroid. She states this had drastically decreased and her thyroid actually felt normal. She continued on two milligrams of LDN. She was seen two months later. She stated she had a few episodes of thyroid swelling, but all were much less than she had had previously since starting the LDN. She also noticed that her moods were better. Okay, Uh, this is a 55-year-old female with neuropathic pain. Um, Her major complaint was fatigue. She was interested in starting HRT when I saw her. She she was a very complicated case. Um, She had a history of a stroke at the age of 45 and a mini-stroke a year previous to me seeing her. She states that her blood pressure had increased to a systolic of 200 prior to her last stroke. She had four congenital heart abnormalities, some of which had been corrected and some were unable to be corrected. She had a congenital fistula in the right and left coronary arteries, and the right coronary fistula was blocked, which is correcting it, but she was unable to have the left treated. She had a stent into the aortic to pulmonary fistula and continues to have periodic chest pain. She complained of difficulty losing weight, insomnia, C 
seasonal allergies and environmental allergies. She reports when she had her stroke in 1997, she had a spinal tap in the ICU, which was badly performed. She states she has had constant pain and numbness in her left leg for 15 years afterwards. She has fasting hyperglycemia and had been menopausal for 10 years without hormone replacement. The patient was treated with vaginal estrogen, counseled about the pros and cons of HRT, and was started on chromium and berberin for her insulin insensitivity. She returned and we discussed her chronic pain more extensively. She stated that it was a three out of 10, but restricts her physical activity. She notes her left leg hurts worse after using it, and she occasionally has to take Vicodin for it. We started her on LDN at a dose of 1.5 milligrams. Two weeks later, she reported that she tolerated the LDN well and that her lower back pain had decreased. She still notes some residual tingling. Two weeks later, she was seen and mentioned the leg pain was better, but her hip pain, which she felt was deeper, was not. Two months later, on an increased LDN dose of uh, three milligrams, she reports having some pain, but notes it's about 50% less on taking the LDN. I thought this case was really worthy of including because this is a person who had nerve damage, who was in chronic pain, even though it wasn't uh, 9 out of 10. It was significant and chronic, and she would have just suffered for the rest of her life with this. I was very impressed that the LDN decreased her pain 50%. I thought that was quite noteworthy. psoriatic arthritis. Um, This was a female about 60 years old who presented with psoriatic arthritis. She had pain in her second toe on the left foot. She saw a rheumatologist who recommended injecting cortisone into the joint, of course, and the patient decided to try LDN instead. She started LDN at one milligram before bed. The patient awoke with anxiety and heart palpitations about 2 to 3 a.m. After one week, the symptoms calmed down, but she persisted in having vivid dreams. The pain in her toe resolved, and her rheumatologist checked her joint, remarked that she did not need a cortisone injection, and her toe joint inflammation and pain seemed to be resolving. She also noted episodes of increased energy and happy feelings about 3 p.m., when she normally is fatigued and has difficulty finishing the day. On increasing the dose to two milligrams, she noted difficulty sleeping nightly, even if she took the dose in the morning. She also noted episodes of great fatigue. Whether this was due to lack of sleep or LDN was not known. She was diagnosed with sleep apnea and is currently on CPAP. She decreased her dose back to 1.5 milligrams which she is taking in the morning. Although she experiences some vivid dreams, they are less. The psoriatic arthritis is under good control. I'd like to thank you for um, reviewing these slides, and I want to just uh, extend a few other slides that were submitted to me. 
following cases were submitted by Natalie Gustafson, who is a compounding pharmacist uh, working in Portland, Oregon, and a huge advocate of using LDN. So I wanted to thank Natalie. <laughs> uh, the first case was psoriasis. This is a 55-year-old woman, and she had psoriasis psoriasis plaques completely covering both legs from her knee down. She had tried laser treatment three years ago, which cleared her condition for three weeks. In July, she started LDN at a dose of 1.5 milligrams and then increased it to 3 milligrams in August while taking no other drugs. She had complete resolution of psoriasis in January and wore shorts last summer for the first time in 28 years. <laughs> Multiple sclerosis. This is a 52-year-old woman, and she was having, with multiple sclerosis, she had new symptoms starting almost weekly. She had right arm tremor, loss of vision in her left eye, tinnitus, leg weakness, tingling, numbness, and electric shocks down her spine and difficulty swallowing. A neurologist wanted to start her on Avonex, which she refused, and she decided instead to use LDN. Um, she started this five, minutes, five months after she was diagnosed in the midst of a bad MS attack. Days after starting the LDN, her attack stopped. Since starting the LDN, no new symptoms have appeared. After one year, all symptoms have resolved. She reported feeling like there is nothing wrong with her anymore, <laughs> and that's a good way to end. Thank you again for your attention, and I hope that this will inspire you to use these this therapy with your patients and uh, to be able to navigate around some of the obstacles and side effects that I've noted with some of my cases. Any questions or comments you may have, please email me, linda, L-I-N-D-A, at ldnrt.org. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for joining us today. We really appreciated your company. Until next time, stay safe and keep well.